And my partner and I were tied to a rope. We were about 55 feet apart or so. We had both had big backpacks on, so we both were carrying about 50 pounds. So imagine two people at about 250 pounds each. And um, he was just walking along, walking along, and suddenly he just disappeared. Literally, the ground beneath him just collapsed. And it was a snow bridge that he was walking across, mm. across a cross. And now a 250-pound person is hurtling, you know, free-falling into this void. Episode 335, Climbing K2, a holiday flashback with Chris Warner. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Hey friends, welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in today, and man, I have a really fun show for you. We've had requests for a show on K2, the second highest summit on the earth, and I thought to myself, there's no one better to do this show than Chris Warner. Chris was on the show all the way back in episode 180, and it's one of my favorite shows, so if you've not heard that one yet, go to theadventuresportspodcast.com and look up episode 180. you got to hear that one too. Let me just give a little bit of his climbing bio and, and what Chris is all about. Chris has led over 200 international climbing expeditions. He has been above 8,000 meters 15-plus times. He has summited five 8,000-meter peaks, and he's the owner of Earthtrex Climbing Gyms. There are five gyms across the United States with two more on the way. Chris is also a fantastic motivational speaker. He uses his experiences leading expeditions and high mountain climbs to uh, teach motivation to corporate 500 companies Chris, thank you so much for joining the Adventure Sports Podcast today. Oh, thank you, Kurt. I'm psyched to be here. And uh, the funny thing about being a motivational speaker is I might motivate teams to work harder, but I'm actually the worst marketer for the sport of mountaineering because all we talk about is everybody dies. (laughs) Right. Well, and part of your story is that you're not dead, (laughs) (laughs) which is great because we can have you on. Yeah. But there's a reason for that. And I think that it's probably at the beginning of the show, we might as well talk about it. These 8,000 meter peaks and these high peaks are not safe places. And it it takes a special kind of uh, approach to doing these expeditions to come back alive. So what's that all about? Well, there's um, two things. There's one, which is, uh, uh, you know, you're or my just being in general denial of the risk that I'm taking. Um, And there's a way that I justify that risk. So um, if you, when I was guiding Everest, we, looked at all the ways that people died and there was 19 ways that you could die on Everest. And we thought, well, if you could, you know, see these things about to occur, then you prevent yourself from killing yourself. Right. And in fact, most people, the mountains don't kill people. Most people kill themselves in the mountains Mm, and you see that everywhere. You just see that, you know, like sadly it just happened a bunch on Capitol peak in Western Colorado where five people were killed this, this past, um, summer but you know it's generally the the top four reasons why people die are human error related and so if we could avoid making those same mistakes if we educate ourselves about those mistakes so we don't make them then we're more likely to come home alive oh yeah you know i would like to talk about capital if you don't mind for just a second i've been i've been trying to think of the right way because it it looks like k2 (laughs) (laughs) yeah well capital is one of my favorite 14ers but chris i climbed it many many years ago and it almost got me yeah. And the reason was I got off trail on purpose. I was off the main route. And at the top, if you're off the main route, there's some uh, some really, really steep polished coulars full of scree. Yeah. Really, really loose. And I wasn't aware of this. And I stepped into one of these coulars. The whole mountain moved with me at once. And we're talking about, you know, 100 tons of boulders. And I ran wow. and dove and grabbed something solid. And those boulders went oh. off a, a two or 300 foot cliff. Mm-hmm. So... Then every time I hear about another death on Capitol, it always sounds like it's that story. Again, there's just there's a, a yeah. human trap up there, and people don't realize it. I'd like to help get the word out. Stay on the main route <laughs> or, yeah. or rope up or something, you know? Well, they think that's um, pretty much the story of the two of the people who died up there this summer. Right. So they were, they were uh, you know, it just looked attractive. And, and you could see um, on a peak like that where... 
anytime, you know, where the trail is difficult to follow and all of a sudden you see rocks that are turned over, right? So they look like people have been gone up and down it, which could happen obviously from a rock slide or a person going down it, or then rescue parties going down to look for people, et cetera. So all that traffic on those loose coulars, it probably drew people in. Right. So people who thought they might've been following the right way were suddenly, you know, suckered into these, uh, these, these, this little maze that ended uh, in the wrong way. Yeah. So capital has that. And, you know, most of the 14ers in Colorado aren't going to do that to you, but capital has that trick. So it's, it's regretful, but you were talking about people staying alive. (laughs) And so back to that. Back, it just, you know, it goes back to the human error thing. So, um, the top four reasons why people die in mountaineering are because of human error. And we spent a lot of time looking at this, especially, as I said, on Everest, because I was guiding it. So you had a group of people who were less, you know, who, who knew these lessons less than we did. You know, they had been, they didn't have the same level of experience upon which to base their good judgment in the future. So, um, you know, the more that we study these, you know, our thought was the more that we would keep people alive. And I think that's, that's very true, because if you see the death rate on a peak like in Everest, it's gone down a lot. Um, yes, we've had traumatic, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, objective danger deaths this past couple of years. You know, we had the earthquake that caused the giant part of the ice fall to go. We had a gigantic avalanche that did the same thing. So those were catastrophic deaths in terms of the numbers of people who were killed. And none of those were caused really by the, the you know, the victim of that. Um, you know, although we used to tell people all the time, you know, in, in risk, when you study uh, risk, you find in general, it's the third thing that kills people. So it's the third mistake or the third, you know, danger that they face. And I used to tell people at the beginning of an expedition, you've already made two of those mistakes. So you only have one left to make and you're going to be dead when you make it. And the first mistake was just coming here, right? Because you right. came in a known dangerous environment. And then, you know, your second <laughs> mistake, of course, is that you don't have the the same, you don't have world-class level, uh, skill and judgment at this point. So you're, you know, as a client and even a lot of, you know, non-clients, you, you just don't have the same level of, uh, of, of expertise as somebody else. So your, your bag of, of solutions is a lot smaller than say a guide or somebody who's been doing this for a long period of time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I also used to tell them that, I don't work for you. I work for your mother because whenever you're <laughs> trying to convince somebody to turn around, you have to, in any negotiation, you have to have a higher authority. Right. And so, um, you know, this used to piss off the people, you know, so you have the 45 year old salesman on their trip who's, you know, made a, made a gazillion dollars. And he's like, wait a second, you know, I, I'm old enough to make my own decisions. You're like, nope, because if I tell you to turn around and you refuse to turn around, right. You're, I'm going to have to deal with your mother. <laughs> your mother is going to hate me. So, and she will, you know, hunt me down and haunt me for the rest of my life. I would much rather just disappoint you and force you to go down than it would be to have your mother hate me and haunt me. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you learn so much about leadership and making those decisions based on available information when you lead the expeditions that you've led. I. I can't imagine how many times you've had to have that conversation with the people in your group saying, it's time, we're turning around. And they're like, wait a minute, I spent the money, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's early in the day. The weather's not so bad. You know, they keep coming up with all these different excuses. So, yeah. You know what? I, I've actually, so I've led over 200 international expeditions. I've never lost a single partner, mm. but I've seen lots of people die. Uh, right. In fact, I, I remember in 2001, I decided I was going to stop counting because I had seen 23 deaths in the mountains at that point. And I was like, it's just not worth counting this, this statistic anymore, um, you know, because they were all obviously horrible. They all hopefully taught me a lot. Um, but you know, it just seemed to, I don't know, it was, it was, it was, it was depressing data to keep collecting. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had a couple of close calls yourself. Oh, absolutely. In fact, when we were on K2 in 2007, um, we were walking across a completely flat glacier. We were, our, we were attempting to get to the east side of the mountain. We wanted to do a new route on K2 and, you know, very, there's very few new routes left to be done in the Himalayas. And so this is a big, proud, you know, objective that we had. Um, as we were walking across this completely flat glacier and it snowed six inches the night before, and there was a, a constant wind blowing the snow. 
And my partner and I were tied to a rope. We were about 55 feet apart or so. We had both had big backpacks on, so we both were carrying about 50 pounds. So imagine two people at about 250 pounds each. And um, he was just walking along, walking along, and suddenly he just disappeared. Literally, the ground beneath him just collapsed. And it was a snow bridge that he was walking across, mm. across a cross. And now a 250-pound person is hurtling, you know, free falling into this void and the rope snaps tight in a flash of a second. And I'm trying to stop being dragged into the same crevasse. And as I'm sliding across the snow towards him, I'm in the footprints that he has made. And suddenly the ground collapses under me and he has fallen 25 feet down another hole. We were literally at different crevasses and this you know, the second snowbridge that I collapsed through was one he had walked over and, and didn't break. And so now he was dangling down on one side. I was dangling down on the other. And, and I literally thought I was connected to a dead body. I didn't know how he could have survived the fall. Um, and then suddenly I started sliding down deeper. And I was like, oh, my God, he's not dead. He's actually climbing up. So then I had to, I had to attach my, my Jumars, you know, these little grippy handles onto the rope. And then every time he went up one foot, I had to go up one foot. And then eventually we were like two little uh, – you know, groundhogs, our heads sticking out of the snow. <laughs> Looking at each other. Looking wow, that was interesting. Oh, my God. And it was not over because then we both had to flip out at exactly the same time, right? Because if one guy flipped out, he would have slid the other guy into his hole. Because remember, you're, you're, right. you're against the 250-pound free-hanging weight. So anyway, it was, it was, it was insane. And, I, and that, if we had both gone into his crevasse, I mean, clearly they would have never found our bodies. And it, that thing probably went three or 400 feet and the way a crevasse works, they're, um, they're very irregular shape, like almost like an hourglass shape. So it's kind of wide and skinny, wide and skinny, wide and skinny. And eventually it narrows down like a wedge. And so generally what happens is the body you know, falls in, bounces around the walls of these things, you know, probably breaking some ribs and you know, slashing open your skull. And then you get wedged in place inside the crevasse. Oh. Um, and then, you know, now you're down, you know, like we would have been down 200 feet or more probably. And all of a sudden you, you would, uh, you would exhale. And as soon as you would exhale, your, you know, your lungs would collapse a little bit and you'd slip in a little bit deeper. And then you try to inhale and it wouldn't quite get as much breath. And then you could just imagine this is like a terrible way to die. Like, are you dying because you, you know, internal bleeding or you're dying because you're you know, you're, you're, you're getting hypothermia or you're dying because you're literally, uh, suffocating yourself. So a yeah. giant ice constrictor. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But that one at first, like, you know, kind of chewed on you a little bit before. It starts <laughs> oh. to you. So, <laughs> that, okay. So yeah. let's go climb a big peak together. I'm ready. Yeah. I told you I was the worst marketer for the sport of climbing. <laughs> well, we should talk about the danger of it. We really should, because people need to yeah. know we're getting ready to talk about what might be the most dangerous. It's among the most dangerous big climbs on the planet. Mm -hmm. and it's been romanticized by Hollywood and all this kind of stuff, and I, I really think people need to know what they're getting into. Yeah, so, you know, let's go to just compare it to Everest for a second. So it's, um, it's about 300 feet shorter than Everest, but it's a lot further north, so you don't have exactly the height, but you have further north, so it creates, it's, it puts it into a colder environment. Mm. On, on Everest, you... There's a lot of things that make Everest easier. For one, it's um, it's not as steep, so it's they're both about eleven thousand five hundred feet or so from base camp to the summit. So the the vertical distance is not that different. Um, on K two though, you really have to use your hands and feet to claw your way up the mountain. So you're using your ice axes and you know you're kicking your crampons in because that eleven thousand feet is just it's just steeper to get up there. We're on Everest. There's long sections where you're just walking, like you can walk with a ski pole. And on Everest, you can. There's just so much more infrastructure. So there's more Sherpas there. There's you know people that know that it's you know 38 feet from this rock to that icicle, and you know they know exactly how to fix the rope every year and how to fix the ladders. And so there's you know there's less unknown, and um, the weather's better. So you have more infrastructure, you have better weather, you have less steep terrain. Um, and you actually have more people. And so more people actually helps keep 
more people alive for a lot of different reasons. One, it's more people to attempt, you know, to help with the rescues, more people to break trail so that no one individual is, is as exhausted. Um, and as a result of that, you know, we've had about 8,000 people on the summit of Mount Everest and we've had just over 200 deaths. And so the death to summit ratio is, you know, somewhere around, uh, I mean, you guys are way smarter than me, but what's that like 2% or something like that, or two and a half percent. And on K2, there's only been, there's been less than 400 people on the summit and there's been about 90, 80 to 90 deaths. So it's about, instead of it being 2.5% death to summit ratio, it's 25% death mm. to summit ratio. Wow. Yeah. And there was a day when Everest was like that too, though, before all the infrastructure and before everything yes. kind of got hammered out, Everest was pretty bad, but K2 was always worse. Yeah, well, so uh, on Everest, right, the first 10 expeditions that went to Mount Everest failed, and 16 people died trying to get there to the top. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And K2, now, we're talking about 10 times more dangerous than Everest's current record, is what we would say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what are the main dangers there? I mean, you already talked about the, the crevasses, right, the weather, yeah, on average, what we found was that most people died by sitting down. And so um, there's a lot of reasons that caused them to sit down. Like they, um, if you, you could carry about 18 hours worth of oxygen, so that, which is uh, three oxygen bottles. And if, if you took 13 hours to get to the top, you have only five hours to get back down. And so uh, people taking too long to get to the summit causes them to run out of oxygen on the way back down, which causes a whole trickle-down effect of other stuff. So that's one of the main reasons that people die. Um, if you sit down and go unconscious, like you're so exhausted you're going to take a nap or you're, um, you're lost in a, in, a, in a whiteout, so you can't see your way down, so you sit down. When people um, become unconscious for either because they fell asleep or because they were injured, they, uh, they, they say that the human body freezes solid in six hours at 40 below zero. Ooh. So, you know, that's why, I mean, literally on the way to the summit of Everest, on the north side, there was eight dead bodies when I used to guide it. Um, and all those people died on the descent, and they all died by basically laying down. Like some of them, yes, may have fallen um, first, you know, like and injured themselves slightly, like this woman, Fran, who we think she probably broke her ankle on, on a descent um, and was unable to continue to move. But, um, you know, so it's those kinds of situations. Um, so most people um, sit down, you know, or lay down. They either fall asleep or something causes them to go unconscious, and as a result of that, they freeze to death. On K two, most of the deaths involve um, falls or being hit by something. So, um, one of my best friends, he and his son, a guy named Marty Schmidt, and his son Denali were there in 2013, and they um, they are at Camp Three. They were there alone, and they put up their tent in the same place that you know, dozens of people put up their tents before. And in the middle of the night, an avalanche came down, and they uh, it swept their tent off the side of the wall. Of the, and when people came up a couple of days later to find, you know, to look for these guys, they found their ice axes and crampons. So the stuff that was left in the vestibule was still there, but the uh. tent. Some portion of the tent, you know, maybe the back half of it or something got hit by this avalanche and then just carried them over, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, carried them for six or 7,000 feet down to the, to the east side of K2. So, oh. yeah. Wow, K2 is a monster. Yeah, when I was there in 2002, the expedition ended for me on my birthday, actually. We were, there was uh, 12 of us that were, and it was an amazing group of climbers. I mean, the best resumes you've ever seen, although we actually, as I tell people, there was 11 prima donnas and myself. But <laughs> <laughs> we were strapping on our crampons at the bottom. So we were at Camp 1, and we were about to start to climb up towards Camp 2, or really, sorry, to, uh, advanced space camp to go to Camp 1. Um, and we were strapping on our crampons and there was a little bit of cloud cover that day. And all of a sudden, one of the climbers started screaming and we looked up in the air and there was a body flying through the air. And it probably fell over a thousand feet before it slammed into the wall the very first time. And it, it was a gigantic explosion of red. And then it bounced another 600 feet, another 200 feet, another 300 feet. And eventually came to rest 500 feet away from us and oh. uh, literally landed on the trail so literally the footprints that people had created to climb up this thing it, it landed on the trail and only two of us had the courage to go 
to this body. I mean, it was, it was obviously he was dead, right? So right. Um, it was myself and another American, a guy who was a lieutenant colonel in uh, the Marines. So he's a former Marine recon officer. Um, so we uh, raced up the hill and we got to him and this body was so traumatized. I mean, literally the, you know, the, his hips had been pulverized in one of the times he exploded against the wall and his legs were tucked up underneath his back and his feet were up by his shoulders. And the back of his head was a source of all the bleeding, you know, the oh. first explosion of red. And so literally the back of his skull was completely crushed in and, and the, everything on the face was just pushed aside a little bit. Um, and it, you know, made him obviously not look very normal. And then the blood as it was rushing out of his head, turned his skin, this grayish color, which made his teeth seem to glow in the dark. I mean, this is a, a brutal, brutal uh-huh. scene. And this other guy and I, you know, we both had been around a lot of death and, and we literally stopped, you know, here's two middle-aged guys, you know, some badass mountaineers. And we, we literally held hands and just squeezed each other for a second and, we knew that it was our job to push as much love into the soul as we possibly could, because the last thing that any human being should ever feel when they leave this earth is, is, you know, any negative emotion. Like we don't want our loved one to feel fear, our fear when they leave this earth, right? We only want to have them feel our love. So we literally had to stop. We literally had whole hands to get our, you know, emotional act together. And then we were able to lay down in the snow next to him or lean down and put our hands on his body. And the first thing we did for about three or four minutes was just push as much love into him as we possibly could. And then we had the task of, of, of remaking him. Like you, we knew that his partners, if they ever saw his body in that condition, even though they didn't cause his death, that they would never be able to forgive themselves. I mean, it was so traumatic. And so um, I had to reach underneath his shoulders and lift up his torso with his head cradled against my chest. And my buddy pulled out one leg and then pulled out another leg. And we laid a a sleeping pad there and we put him on top of the sleeping pad. And then the blood was just pouring out everywhere. So he took a down jacket and we put him over his, his, you know, his top of his, you know, his body and arms in the sleeves and stuff. And then we put the hood on and we pulled the strings on the hood as tight as we could and tied him in a knot so nobody could see his face. And, um, after about, you know, an hour of work, we had him ready to lower him down. So we lowered him down to where all the other climbers were. And, um, you know, at this point people were willing to help us a little bit and we're like, okay, you know, like the biggest problem is the blood kept pouring out. So, we had to get a plastic garbage bag and put it over the top half of his body and then tear apart some tents and wrap him in like this mummy type thing. So then we could then carry him for the three and a half miles back to base camp. And uh, it was, you know, the whole thing was just absolutely brutal. And I actually was sitting there with, you know, in this circle with the dead body laying in between us. And literally my Gore-Tex jacket is covered with parts of his skull and, you know, brain and bone and everything else. And I'm looking at all these other climbers, you know, these guys who I was going to climb K2 with. And I, I looked right at him and I suddenly started bursting out crying, like massive anxiety attack just hit me. Like I could feel oh, like, yeah. he's, you know, like being stabbed in the stomach a million times. And I leaned up and, you know, tears racing down in my face. And I'm like, I'm quitting. And you know what? Today's my birthday and I'm going <laughs> oh, home. <laughs> so, that's awful. Yeah. What yeah, a grisly like, story. Yeah, that was crazy. That's that summer, two people died. Nobody summited, and of the twelve people on that trip, six of them are now dead. Mm. Yeah, it's official. Winter has arrived, and Bent Gate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events.
Okay, well, I think you did a perfect job of letting us know what this is really all about. I guess the question a lot of people have to be asking, and I'm going to ask it, you've heard it a thousand times, why do it if this is the risk? Well, I think, so for me, look, a lot of us are adventurous by nature, right? Like we have this romantic vision of of the world and the power of adventure to transform lives. And so, and that's definitely me. Like I was uh, five years old when uh, man walked on the moon for the very first time. And, mm. you know, so those of us who lived through those kinds of experiences, I mean, we really were indoctrinated to this idea of the power of adventure. Uh, you know, like I went on to become an outward bound instructor, you know, so I know all about, you know, transforming people's lives through adventure. Um, when I was 15 years old, I went off on an outward bound type course and it totally changed my life. You know, as I like to say that, you know, I found myself by getting lost. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So I, I love all the things that come out of these adventures. I love the fact that when you were literally fighting for your life, you have to be the very best version of yourself. You know, you have to be the the strongest you've ever been. You have to be, you know, the most, uh, the smartest you've ever been, the most intellectually, uh, you know, in tune you've ever been. So, uh, and emotionally in control as you've ever been. So I love those experiences. I truly think that I come away from an ascent of a peak like K2, um, wiser. And then I'm able to apply that to my life back at home, which is the whole goal of all this stuff. So yeah, I think a life without adventure for, for me, and I think a lot of people would be, um, kind of like, I don't know, like you would, you, you didn't live to your potential. So, yeah. So I keep going back for those reasons. I keep feeling that there's parts of my soul that gets recharged through the experience. You know, Chris, the Adventure Sports Podcast is all about encouraging people to find their adventure. Um, usually when we say that, we're not talking about K2, <laughs> right? <Yes. laughs> you know, we're talking about adventure that are sized appropriately for the person's, you know, level of experience and fitness and, and all that sort of thing. And, and our number one thing is be safe about it so you can enjoy it another day. You know, and you still have that same motto, although your adventures are out there, man. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a big. So, look, I did not start by climbing K2. I started uh, actually by climbing the Grand Teton, and you know, kind of building up for that. But it's been a, you know, that was um, th- 35 years ago. I climbed the Grand Teton, and I have not stopped since then. I, I would. Never want to be on K2 if I was not extremely experienced because it is a peak where quite often your partners can't save you. And so you have to be able to save yourself and clearly you want to be there to save your partners. So it's a a tricky place that way. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about K2 and what it is really like. So you said it's it's, uh, about the same verts from base camp to top as Everest, a lot steeper. You said 10 times more dangerous just based on the number of people that have died. Uh, 28,251 feet. So, I mean, you think about that. You're essentially, I mean, that's like Everest with just missing a bump, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It's in Pakistan instead of Nepal. How does that change things? Well, it it changes things a lot, really. I mean, um, the, the, the infrastructure from support staff to everything else is just you just just so much more infrastructure in nepal than there is in in pakistan you know even if you just think about it the distance from the nearest village i mean you are in everest you know depends on how fast you move or whatever but you're within two or three days of a permanently inhabited village um you're a couple of hours from you know seasonally inhabited villages you have ready access to helicopters today you know all this other stuff in in Pakistan, you're eight days from the nearest village. And these are eight really hard days. I mean, mm. you're traveling across um, this, this moraine-covered glacier um, for, you know, four of those eight days or, or five of those eight days. Um, you're, so there's no – you can't really run for help. Like, all the help has to be there from there. It's also uh, – you can't – it's very difficult to get helicopters in there, extremely difficult. It's just an extremely long way from where the nearest helicopter is based. Um, I mean, if you go to the Kumbu now, it, it, you, you think it's like Uber of helicopters. There's helicopters flying back and forth and around all day long. It's just, wow. it's amazing the difference. Um, so on K2, you, you just everything about it is just much more remote. 
Um, even if you just wanted to get a resupply of potatoes, it's an infinitely more difficult adventure, you know, than getting a resupply on Everest. So, yeah, so there's definitely a difference to that. I mean, you could, um, you know, talk about geopolitics, the difference between those two countries, which are, you know, certainly are great problems. Um, K2 itself has been lucky the last bunch of years because it has not had, you know, kind of um, the, you know, the, the Taliban-esque challenges that you've had on a peak like Nanga Parbat, which is also in Pakistan, if you remember that in 2013, um, I think it was 2013, a group of uh, Western climbers were pulled out of their tents in the middle of the night and executed. Um, so I think there was 13 people that were executed that night. I spent actually two summers there on Nanga Parbat trying to get to the top of it. And I turned around in 2008, I took all of my equipment out of Pakistan and decided I was not going to go back. I, I could feel that like the increase in danger that was existing in Pakistan it had just passed my threshold of comfortability. Mm. So, well, and you summited K2 in 2007, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get down to some of the details of your expedition in 2007. And I want to tell the listeners, uh, Chris on his website, has a uh, wonderful documentary, several actually, but wonderful documentary about this climb. It's it's really neat to get to see some of it instead of just hearing the story. So you might want to go there. And that's uh, chrisbwarner.com, right? Yes. And yep. don't forget the B because you, you won't be there. If you, don't, you, you have to have the B to be there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so chrisbwarner.com, and you can watch what we're, what we're talking about here. But your expedition... I, you know, yeah, ahead. I would highly recommend people do that. We... Um, filmed it for NBC. And even though it was just us as climbers as the cameraman, we literally, you know, went to Best Buy and bought a bunch of cameras and threw them in our down jackets. But we shot 41 hours of film. Um, we came back, we gave it to NBC and NBC edited it, uh, turned it into an hour long um, documentary. And they aired it a, bu- a lot of times, actually. And they nominated us for six Emmys. So nice. we got to go to the Emmy Awards. We were finalists in one category. Um, we didn't win that category, but it was – look, it's a pretty cool uh, event to go to. To be at the Emmys is just amazing. So Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We were really – we really were lucky. I mean it's, it's – you know, as a storyteller – uh, it's it's really man versus nature type of conflict. I mean, the mountain is just brutal, and it keeps throwing terrible stuff at us left and right. Well, on this expedition, you guys tried five times, right? Is that correct? Yes. yes. Five times, and you did summit on the fifth, but the point yeah. is you were turned around four times on just this one attempt. Yeah, we, we um, and this is my third season on K2, so I had spent a total of nine months of my life trying to get to the top of this thing. Um, so I think that could, could definitely reinforce that I am a major failure, that it takes me that many times to get to the top of something. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt yeah. that at all. So first, uh, you had a team with uh, two other climbers, Don Bowie and Bruce Normand. Yep. And you were trying to establish the new route that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And uh, the mountain just kept saying no. So what finally yep. made your decision to not do that route? Well, we were we actually tried two different new routes that season. The first one we gave up when we got swallowed by the glacier. The second one we got six thousand feet up this um, face, and we literally were going through a section of uh, uh, it was ridiculously steep, and then it only got steeper. And for, to tell you the truth, we failed because of good weather. We the, it got so hot that rocks that had been frozen in place for tens of thousands of years were suddenly free to tumble down the mountain. And we, uh, we had massive avalanches, wet snow avalanches, rock avalanches. Um, and we knew that there was no safe way to get through this, this next section of the mountain. And so we had no choice, but to, to pull the plug and go all the way back down to the bottom and start all over again. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. And we, our whole expedition was 89 days door from to door. So we were, you know, Wow. I don't know, 50 days of, of on these failed attempts, you know, or 60 days before we started to head on to the, to, before we even started on the route that we eventually got to the summit of. Mm, that, that's crazy. And then when you did summit, you had joined forces with several other teams from around the, the world and it made this yep. very large international team. So how many people were involved with that? 
Well, we had gotten up to 25, roughly 25,000 feet to the side of Camp 3, and um, we we failed because the snow was past waist deep. And so we came back down. Like, we we literally, we tried, but we were going about 100 feet, vertical feet an hour, mm. and we were, you know, 3,000 feet from the summit. I mean, there was no way that the math could work. And so right. we, we went back down, and we um, we got together with all the other team leaders, and we said, hey, listen, you know, like, up to this point, everyone's really been competing against each other. We have to cooperate, or nobody will summit. And, you know, you're, you're asking people, and I'm sure you've been in this situation before, everybody sits in a circle, you know, and then we look at each other and we say, okay, look, you know, up to this point, you've been competing against each other. It's now time to cooperate. And we know, you know, that the dangers are obvious. Like when we leave base camp, we're going to have to remake the trail up to camp one and camp two and camp three, et cetera. And that's going to be exhausting. Chances are, some of us are going to be uh, used up, like we're going to be so exhausted we won't be able to go to the next camp. Are you willing to be part of the group that you know uses uses people up, you know, like you know, be a consumable resource to try to get everybody <laughs> higher? And everybody, you know, in that situation, you you know, like the peer pressure is so great, you have to say yes. And then, so we knew that you know, if 25 of us leave base camp, you know, maybe only uh, 10 of us would make a summit bid you know, on summit day. And then of that 10, maybe only four would summit or one would summit. And would you, would you literally risk your life to get somebody from another team to the summit? Wow. And that's, that was a question we, we asked everybody and everyone was like, yes, we are willing to do this. And so we all agree that we're going to leave the next morning to head up the peak and um, our team gets up and we leave and we're the only team that left. <laughs> and so everybody else, you know, saw the weather was not nice. And so they rolled over and went back to bed. Um, in fact, we get all the way up to Camp 3 and there's a, the, an Italian expedition was also filming their expedition. And they have a great scene. They're holding on to the tent poles in Camp 1. And the wind is blowing the tent back and forth and back and forth. And they're talking to their producers back in base camp. They said, you know, like it's impossible to go anywhere. And the producer in base camp says, yes, but the Americans have just made camp three. (laughs) (laughs) All these people are now panicked because they realize that we are, they think we're going to summit and they're not. So they have to catch us. And so the next day people leave early, they pass camp two, they make it up to camp three and we we're by ourselves. So we try to continue to go higher, but you know, the waste again is past waist deep. And so, um, after about five hours, we've gone 500 vertical feet. Oh. And, um, so the next day, uh, a group comes up. And so there's roughly say 20 of us going or 25 of us probably going to the, to camp four and 10 of us are breaking trail and the snow's so deep. The first guy goes 10 feet, steps aside the next guy goes 10 feet and steps aside. So after 100 feet, you're first again. And then you go your 10 feet and step aside. And then there's 15 people behind us shouting and cheering. You guys are doing great. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> wow. But we make, but we, yeah, we make it up to camp, uh, the, the highest camp. And from there, we're going to make the summit push. And so the summit push is much more involved. The terrain is more technical, which is people see the, the TV show. They're going to really appreciate this. Um, but the plan was, even before leaving base camp, there's three strong teams. There was a strong Korean team that had five Nepali Sherpas, and they had uh, roughly 10 climbers. They were, had bottled oxygen. Not all 15 of them made it to the highest camp, but roughly, roughly 10 of them made it to the highest camp. So they were going to take the first 1,000 uh, feet of rope and string it along. And then our team of just three climbers, we have no bottled oxygen, it's just three climbers, we're going to take the middle 1,000 feet, and if you see K2, the middle thousand feet on summit day is the most dangerous. It's the most technically difficult. There's rock bands, you know, steep ice bands, etc. Um, and then w- the third thousand feet of rope is going to be carried by these Russians. So there's a total of eight Russian climbers. They're all on bottled oxygen. I think not all eight made it to the highest camp, but four of them end up making the summit. And they're going to take the last thousand feet of rope. And so then we go to the Italians and the Portuguese and the Iranians and say, listen, your job is to stay in bed, wait till the ropes are in, you know, like let us go up and take on the danger of putting in the rope. Let's take on the extra effort of putting in the footsteps. And when the danger is gone and when the effort is less, then you're allowed to wake up, you know, have a cup of coffee and follow in our footsteps. You get the reward of going to the summit without any of the risk. And of course, they Mm. thought that was the greatest plan ever invented. (laughs) And we start our summit push. And to be the most efficient, the Koreans had to leave an hour before us. And then we would, then the Russians leave an hour after us. And then eventually the last teams would leave. Well, the Koreans were 
over an hour delayed. So oh. basically, we leave just about the same time as they do, and the Russians leave just about the same time as we do. And um, it's getting towards dawn. It's about four o'clock in the morning, and uh, Koreans Sherpas are laying the rope out. And one of the Sherpas who's been to the summit of Everest six times before. He's got his harness on. He's got his carabiner. The rope is laying at his feet, and he chooses not to clip into the rope. And all of a sudden, he loses his footing. We don't know what caused him to lose his balance, but now he's uh, sliding down the snow. And he the, the fall line is away from us, and so he's falling off the side of K2. And he hits this patch that to us looks like it's flat, but clearly wasn't. And he never stops. He never tries to self-arrest. We never see him trying to wiggle to save his life. He just goes shooting off the side of K2, and then we watch his body tumble for over 8,000 feet. Mm. Yeah, he's the first person to die. Ugh. Yeah. And this is gripping, as you could well imagine. So everybody's just literally, we have a picture of it of, of, that somebody had taken and, uh, and small groups of people. Some people are on their hands and knees. They look like they're praying. Other groups are just sitting around, you know, just, I don't know, processing this experience. But everybody's literally gripped out of their mind. And everybody, statistically, on Summit Day, for every seven people who will reach the top, one will die. And there's 20 plus of us going for the summit this day. So the first person's dead, but two more are going to die. And no. everybody, yeah, everybody's just gripped. And so the, uh, the, the highest Sherpa, the guy who had been laying the rope out, he's a young guy and he's just watched his mentor follow his death. And he's so afraid he's sitting there with an anchor in one hand and a rope in the other. And he cannot remember how to tie a knot and he's screaming for help. And so I'm near the front, and I hear this scream for help, and I just take off, like following up their footprints, getting up to this guy as fast as I can. I grab the rope and the anchor, and I you know, tie it off for him, connect him to the rope, and he's able to head back down. And you know, as I've been climbing up, I'm looking around, and you know, I remember I've been on nine months on K2, right. you know, nine months of life spent here. And I'm like, this is the nicest day I've ever seen. <laughs> so I get on the radio to my buddies, and I'm like, I, look – I, I want to keep going. What do you guys think? And, you know, I, it takes a team, so you can't just go by yourself. And so they're like, yeah, let's give it a try. I have 600 feet of rope in my pack. And so I stretch 600 feet of rope out until I run out of rope. And we're now literally at the steepest, hardest part of the whole climb. And I've run out of rope. And uh. I call down to my buddies. I'm like, send, there's this one Russian dude named Roman who's had all of his teeth removed and they're replaced with these golden crowns. And it looks like the joke. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like the Jaws character in the right. old James Bond movie. And uh, I'm like, send Roman now. <laughs> so this dude comes charging up and he's breathing oxygen. So he's it's like listening to the Darth Vader. Like, hur, hur. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he's got a rope. I tie the rope. And I'm like, go, Roman, go. And so Roman takes off and he goes around this super hard, ridiculously steep section of ice. And it's it's the it's the key to to going to the summit of k2 he's he's you know he's pulled this off you know he's able to has the technical skills to make it happen and suddenly now we're past the greatest difficulty and, and now so the crutch is behind you yeah so now it's just a struggle to get to the top and we got to the top normally you know like when i guided everest we you know we try to get everybody in the top you know between 10 and 11 hours 12 at the most because remember that 18 hour of oxygen rule right now we're on the summit and it's taken us 14 and a half hours to get to the top and uh it's uh even worse than that it's now uh it's like 4:30 in the afternoon no it's 15 and a half hours it's 4:30 in the afternoon <laughs> yeah this is brutal nothing about this is good right so um some teams that have bottled oxygen touch the top and take off, and um, we don't have bottled oxygen, so we're not panicked about running out of oxygen, but we are panicked about running out of daylight. And up to this point, it's been pretty warm, and suddenly now we're on the top of K2, and um, you know the sun is getting ready to set, and um, we have to get down. And there's three climbers up there that ha are basically alone they're all alone they're all from three different teams they don't have any teammates with them at all and uh, they all need well, help to get back down so we have to guide them over to the fixed lines and you know the general rule in mountaineering is or especially in guiding is that the strongest person is always the, the the first to the summit and the last to come off and the reason for that is is that it's very easy to descend to a problem so if you are 100 feet below me and you stop breathing, I could be with you in seconds or minutes. Right. If you're 100 feet above me and you stop breathing, it might be, you know, an hour. So you're, you're clearly dead. So I want all the problems below me. 
And so we gather these misfit toys and we lead them over towards the rope where we hook into the 3,000 feet of descending that we have to do. Um, and as we are hooking into the ropes, we see two more climbers still coming up. And it's these two Italian climbers. And they actually, you know, they're incredibly experienced. They insist on going to the summit which they do summit, but they reach the summit. And as they're descending, it's literally darkness is coming down and with darkness comes cold. Right. So it's, it's not just, I mean, it's definitely going to be slower. I mean, you know, the difference between night hiking, right? Like, you know, at, at an hour in the dark of night hiking is 10 minutes in the day. Right. Right. So, yep. yeah. So we, um, we're going to go slower and, but the bigger problem was the lack of, you know, the heat. And so now it's, it's dropping down into minus 20 territory and we're descending and just, you know, getting more cold and colder. And as we get, um, back down to where we could start walking again, there's a Czech climber. This Czech climber had come up uh, a different route on K2. They had seen, he was a member of a five person summit team and, and they saw our lights in the middle of the night. And so they traversed over to where we were and followed our footsteps up. And four of the other climbers were overcome by exhaustion. So they turn around and this one guy, you know, perseveres to get to the summit. And now as we're coming down and we're getting back to where you have to start, you know, you can't lower yourself on ropes anymore. You have to start walking. He collapses and we roll him over and he looks at, up at us and he only could say is I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And we're like, dude, you're not dying on us. And so wow. we don't know where don't know where his team is. We don't know where their sleeping bags are, their tents. We don't know anything about where these guys are. So we have to drag them over to our tent. And so um, Don and I put them over our shoulders and we, we drag them for over an hour back to our tent. When we get there, we have a three-person tent with three you know, sleeping bags in it with now four you know, big dudes. And so uh, Don has to go in first. He's our paramedic. He's going to get out you know, the, all the injectables so we can start pumping this guy up with steroids to try to keep him alive. Uh, Bruce is... Uh, you know, our, the, he's Bruce is getting this guy's crampons off, etc. Um, it's about 10 minutes per person to get into the tent. And so I have about a half hour. So I go wander around and check in with everybody, you know, I'm checking in with the, with the Russians and the Koreans and, um, and these, this Italian group. And it was the two Italians that were still going to the top. And, you know, the leader and I were going back and forth about, you know, how far away they were, you know, like what, what the plan is. And we left it. If they're not back by, 1230 he just needs to start yelling help and we'll get up and go find these guys well at 11 one of these guys starts to call in on the radio we knew a storm was forecast for the next day and the wind had already started to blow the snow the footprints away and so he needed directions on how to get back and he crawls into the tent at one o'clock in the morning and you know his partner say well where's your where's where's the fourth guy where's stefano zafka and he goes oh stefano's behind me five minutes you know like you're tired i'm tired they all go to sleep three italians uh. go and the fourth guy never comes back, but we don't know this. By dawn, it's a raging blizzard. I mean, visibility is about 15 feet. And the Russians and the Koreans and the Portuguese climbers team up and they descend. And the, the three remaining Italians team up with the Iranian. They start descending. They can't find their way. They come back up and they're outside of our tent. And so we're inside this tent at, you know, 26,000 feet with this whacked out Czech dude who, I mean, I have this picture of him. You would think he was on heroin. His eyelids are, you know, his eyes are super dilated and he's completely whacked out and, you know, suffering massive anxiety attack, doesn't speak any English right now because his brain is so swollen. And we, uh, we know we have to lower him down this mountain. He's completely incapable. We don't, we can't get him to his team. We don't know where his team is. So we have to take him down the mountain with us. And um, as we're packing up to go, uh, we had left all of our crampons and ice axes in the vestibule tent. And somebody else from another team left theirs outside. Ten inches of snow is buried. There's crampons. They can't find their crampons, so they steal the top pair of crampons from us. Oh, so one wow. of us has to. Yeah, so one of us has to descend without crampons. While we're going through all this crazy crampon stuff, or literally this man can do nothing for himself. You know, you have to reach in and and you know help him pee in a bottle and zip his clothes up and you know blow his nose for him you know we're going through all of this stuff and we hear screaming outside of our tent the italians you have to come now you have to guide us down if you don't take us down right now you're gonna die just like stefano zafka died and we hear about eight o'clock in the morning for the first time that this guy stefano has not come back and wow. you know, we do a quick ethical you know discussion like i mean what are we gonna do like are we gonna go look for this guy and you know, we knew from being on these big mountains that, you know, there's one of two things likely had happened. One was that he walked off the side of the mountain, just like, you know, the Sherpa did slid off the day before. Or second, he sat down and froze to death. And um, 
we have this this Czech guy with us who's absolutely going to die if we don't take him down. We have three Italians and, a, and an Iranian guy who are also lost and they're in a state of total panic. And we have to make the decision. Do we go seeking this man, this the single Italian guy, or do we put all of our efforts into saving five people's lives? And um, that's the decision that we have to make. And we, uh, we, we, we know that there's consequence. No matter what, that decision results in somebody's death. So we, we have to we make the decision to take him down. And again, we've, we are one pair of crampons short. And, you know, crampons are great, um, but not necessary if you're in snow. Like you, we've all, you know, walked down s- steep ski slopes without crampons on and we were fine, you know. But heaven help, you, you hit a patch of snow. I mean, a patch of ice and we're descending. Bruce and I have to lower the check climber down. Don's going to go ahead to try to find the trail. So the way this would set up is Bruce and I had to have crampons on to lower the check climber on a rope. And Don was going to, you know, we were hoping the best for, but well, he hits a patch of ice at about 25,000 feet by a miracle as he's tumbling down the side of K2, he lands the tents, but he's broken his leg. And so when he tries to stand up, his, uh, his leg will not support his weight. And so he, we now have another problem of just, you know, now, wow. we're in a blizzard. Yeah, it's a full-on blizzard, right? <laughs> so we got a, a whacked-out check dude who's, you know, suffering from massive cerebral edema. His brain is literally swollen to the point where he's, you know, it's trying to kill him. Don's got his, his leg injury. Um, so we, we, ha- we know we have to split the team up that the check climber cannot stay. I mean, cannot descend anymore. He's completely overcome with exhaustion. So I'm going to spend the night in camp three with him. Don, uh, Bruce, with the help of the three Italians and the, and the, uh, Iranian are going to descend together to camp two. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in the mountains with a guy with a broken leg, but they're terribly slow. And so the, uh, the Italians and the, uh, Iranian give up that they, they're inconvenienced by having to rescue. And so they leave Don and Bruce and they climb down to camp two. When they get to camp two, their tents are destroyed. Um, but oh. our tent is still standing. <laughs> so they crawl in our tent. So a three person tent with four people in it, there's a sleeping bag in there, there's a stove, there's food, they're eating our food. They're, you know, there's one uh, Italian climber who's left all of his gear behind is sleeping. He's laying inside the sleeping bag at eight o'clock at night. Don crawls to the tent, opens the door and they're all screaming. You can't come in. You can't come in. He's like, what do you mean? I can't come in. This is my tent. And, and they're like, well, you're going to have to sleep in the vestibule. And Don is like, well, can I have my sleeping bag? Cause he's, we had left a spare sleeping bag in there. So, you know, you don't want a guy with a broken leg carrying excess gear. So Don's like, can I have my sleeping bag? And the, 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 one of the Italians, Mario goes, you know what, Don, yesterday this was your sleeping bag. Tomorrow it'll be your sleeping bag. But today this is my sleeping bag. And he won't give a man his own sleeping bag. Yeah. So in the middle, anyway, we we all survive the night. It takes us another, uh, well, the next day we all make it down to at least to advanced base camp. Don and I spend the night in advanced base camp. Um, Bruce is able to, and uh, everybody else is able to make it back to base camp. Don can't walk. So, you know, as soon as you get off the steep part of K2, he's, 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 you know, needs, we need people to carry him. So Bruce has gone down to base camp to get a rescue party organized to carry Don the next day, the three and a half miles back to base camp. And so anyway, Don and I are up there and, uh, anyway, the next day comes around, we get him carried down with the help of a great group, mainly these Americans that were also on the on the, on the mountain on a different expedition. Um, and then, you know, the helicopter comes in and flies out the injured. And I go over to the Italians and I'm ready to have a lo- one of those long, hard conversations with wow. a group of people, right? And so I walk over there and these, these men had spent most of the expedition combing their hair and drinking espressos. So I show up and I'm like, hey. And they're like, oh, Chris, would you like an espresso? I'm like, hell yeah, I want an espresso. And so I get my espresso. And I'm like, I also want to have a conversation. Like, what the hell happened with, you know, Stefana? Why'd you leave him behind? You know, like all this mm. other stuff. So this is a shouting match, like you've, you know, like as you could well imagine, right? Yeah. And so everyone's screaming at the top of their lungs out of each other. And in walks the Iranian climber. And he starts wagging his finger at me. And he says to me, he goes, I have a question for you. And I'm like, me? Like, why are you questioning me? Like, we, you know, like, what did we do wrong? He goes, I have a question for you. Why was it when everybody else was up there for themselves, why was it that your team was up there for everybody else? Mm. I was like, my God, dude. Like, you reached the peak, but you missed the point. Right. 
Like, what is the point? Why do we go on these adventures to be the best person we possibly can be? Not the most selfish asshole we've ever been. It's like, who cares if you step on a patch, a higher patch of snow than everybody else? If you did it and turned yourself into, you know, a, a knucklehead in the process, then, you know, like, you made the world worse, not better. Yeah, and you got to live with yourself after that. Yeah, we had three goals on our expedition, which we talked about all the time. Number one was to come home alive. Like, we thought that was a pretty good idea. Good idea. <laughs> so, the second one was to sum it together, because we knew that as soon as you split the team up, that your chances of dying were greater. Right. And the third one was to climb the mountain in a style that we were going to be proud of forever. So originally, we thought that meant climbing a new route on the mountain. And it, as it was, it just turned into climbing the normal route, the Abruzzi Ridge, but doing it in the, in the best possible style, right? We, whether it was fixing lines or breaking trail or saving people's lives, you know, we, we were ridiculous, you know, definitely walked away proud of, the, of everything that we did up there. Mm. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180TAC.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. That's one reason, Chris, why I wanted to get you on to get your perspective on this, because so many people, I, I, you know, they, they want the prize more than they want what really matters. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what makes you such a great motivational speaker, too, is you're able to talk to humanity and say, listen, there are things that matter more than the prize, and we can get the prize together, but if we do it in the right way, we're all better people. Yeah, like you and I, and I, I'm sure all of your listeners, this is actually, to, to be a little uh, ethnocentric maybe, this is a very strong part of the American outdoor ethos, right? Mm. That we, we go to the outdoors to become better people, yes. which is not the truth for all cultures. So we have that. But we certainly believe that partnerships trump accomplishments, like yep. we would rather be surrounded by friends on our deathbed than by trophies. Absolutely. And yeah, and so the more you know, like we have to keep that in front of us. That the, the the balance of this of course is that you know, we also are very driven by accomplishment. I mean, you know, whether it's ambition or whatever the word you want to put around it, it's like we like having goals. Like, you know, it's the 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 goals you know, get us to go exercise in the morning. They get us to, you know, I don't know, to all these different things, whether it's how we work on our friendships, et cetera. So yes, we definitely want and need goals. So yeah, it's a fine balance. The outdoors is a very phenomenal, uh, you know, like whether it's adventure racing or anything else, like it's a really, um, powerful platform for us to explore how, you know, you know, I don't know, powerful we possibly can be. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, we, we have a lot of opportunities to destroy all that is good in the outdoors right now. So I think mm. we're at a very inter- – our generation is in a very interesting time relative to the outdoors. You know, are we going to, to love it to death? You know, are we turning – you know, are we turning too much adventure into just endurance sports? Or, you know, like, look, there's, there's no unknown going to the zone of Mount Everest anymore. So you're not casting off into the unknown. Right. You're – there's personal unknowns, right? But really, you, 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 today there's just really amazing, you know, high altitude endurance athletes out there, which are very different from the world in 8,000 meter peak climbing, you know, even 25 years ago. Right. You know, like one of, one of the heroes of, 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 um, of, of the, you know, Kind of the the 1970s and 1980s, kind of the golden age of Himalayan mountaineering, um, 
was this guy Alex McIntyre, and a- Alex McIntyre would would said every single time that style trumps summits. Yes. And yeah, so I, I don't know. I hope I hope we can keep that concept alive within outdoor sports. That's our generation's task. Well, you know, the Adventure Sports Podcast is always about encouraging people to find their adventure to enlarge their lives, not because the adventure does it, but because of what they learn about themselves in the process, because yeah. of the community that's gained in the process, you know, the people that are, you've teamed up with and that share a passion for the outdoors and for that particular sport. And it, it translates to big mountain expeditions as well. You know, if, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, why are you doing it? That's it's yeah, just I don't the way that, I feel. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And, and you know, like it's the, you know, clearly we live in an era, in an age where people are a little bit more um, externally focused and internally focused. You know, you just see that in the the increases in the rates of narcissism in, in our country. So it's they they say that it's gone up by over twenty percent during this last generation. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, you just <laughs> That's, the uh, the selfie else. movement, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so we it's it is a very interesting time for all of us. But hopefully, people you know we find you know some. We, we we use the outdoors as a place to kind of get away from all of that and kind of reground ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all you have to do is jump on Instagram and you see all the people that find some way to place themselves in a beautiful scene a thousand times yeah. and post it. And you're like, well, how did you do all of that? And everyone talks about FOMO now, fear of missing out. We're trying to make everyone else jealous of our lives. And I'm like, well, yeah. okay, you took a you took a an instant in time where you stood in a pretty place, but where's your heart? What's your soul doing? Yeah, but you know it's you funny. Know? Like I just was—I mean, uh, maybe we're getting off the subject of K two. I—I just was, uh, you know, pedaling up in Aspen, and you see all these electric bikes, these e bikes out there now, and all these people that are coasting up the same hill that I'm, you know, grinding up on my, uh, you know, my road bike, and I'm like, you know what? The coolest thing is they're out. Yeah. Like it's great that they're experiencing the outdoors. So even if you know, yes, that. 10% of their outdoor experiences spent taking their own picture. The other 90% is going to have to do, is going to trickle into their soul and make them a better person. I mean, one of the funnest things about the climbing gyms is that people do not climb with their phones. So you go in there and it's like they put their phones down and right. they might all of a sudden an hour and a half of their lives have gone by and they haven't been on their phone. I mean, it, that's a, <laughs> that's a cool thing in this era. It really is. And you're right. I mean, I climb at your gym in golden I, and you're right. People yeah. aren't climbing with their phones. It's exactly right. Yeah. People are getting real. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's super. It, it is real. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Really, really cool. Well, Chris, wow, we burned through an hour. I, I wish we could go on for yes. two more hours because I love the to hear about your experiences. I love to hear about your perspectives that you've gained from this, but mm-hmm. people are going to want to know how to find more information about you and your gyms and that sort of stuff. So let's make sure that we get that word out right now before we run out of time here. Yeah. I think I would just rely on good old Google and go hunt down earth Trex climbing centers. So we have, you know, the five gyms and we're opening two more within the next six months. Um, and then you could look for Chris B Warner or, Chris Warner Climber, and you could find my website that has you know the K2 video on it, plus talks a lot about the leadership work that I do. Right, and you're a fantastic motivational speaker, and your forte is on how to get teams to get together and get stuff done as a team, which you've proven over and over and over again in your expedition climbs. So I, I know that there are a lot of people that will benefit from your experiences, and this is another main point I want to make for everyone to hear again is that when you go out and you have these experiences and you learn something about it and, and you gain some notoriety and all of that sort of thing, you can put those skills and that notoriety back to use to help everyone else. You can bring it back home again. And Chris, that's what you're doing. So I thank you for that. It's really awesome. Well, thanks. It's been a, a, a pleasure, a fun series of adventures, and I hope I have plenty more ahead of me. Oh, I'm sure you do. Um, your two new Earth Treks, where are they coming in, just so people can watch for them? Well, we have one that we're building in uh, Denver, in Englewood, Colorado. We took over the, the headquarters, the former headquarters of the Sports Authority. So there's going to be a 52,000-square-foot climbing gym in there. Um, it'll be the largest climbing gym in the United States. Wow. And then we have a really fun product that we're doing in Baltimore right now, which is um, we've teamed up with a, a microbrewer, uh, a uh, 
gourmet ice cream guy, a whiskey distillery, and um, a, a building has been purchased, and we're converting 20,000 square feet of that building into a bouldering gym. So it's super, I don't know, super fun, super hip, kind of like, I don't know, millennial paradise. <laughs> That's great. So coming soon to a corner near you if you're in one of these two places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for your time today and for sharing with us about the K2 experience. K2 is not on my bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Capital Peak is on mine, so I got that for me. Uh, You know, hearing from you about K2 definitely was on my list, and thanks for sharing that with us. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you very much for your time. And until the next show, be safe. Remember, great teams, people matter, and have some fun. Hey, before you run off, why don't you join our Facebook group for the Adventure Sports Podcast? Just look it up. You can chime in on other people's adventures and post your own. And consider helping to support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Podcast. There's a link at the top right-hand corner of our site as well. Now until the next episode, get out and have some fun.